want you to know the youth group, the senior high, I believe, is going to the con house in um, the house of the cons. Con house. That doesn't sound right. Tyler and Jen's house uh, tonight at Brooklyn. And I just, you know, once in a while, I, I know they make this announcement. They may put it in different places. I want you to know uh, some of the things young people are doing. This is a big deal. I think devotionals are a huge deal, especially when they're in someone's house. And it takes some effort. Michael's doing that, and I'm so grateful he's doing that. And while most of you say, well, that doesn't pertain to me, I want you to know what's happening. I want you to hear these young people are gathering like this, and uh, I appreciate the effort that it, that it takes to pull that off. So anyway, they'll be there, and, t- and it may be a little later than normal when they get back. Who knows what they got planned out there? When you're at a con house, you just never know what might happen. Uh, but anyway, grateful for them opening up their homes, too, and I know it's going to be a, a blessing for everybody uh, there. Don't forget the Relationship Matters uh, seminar starts next Sunday. Don't forget that. And anybody learn a song you never heard of tonight? A couple of them Gary wrote when he was a kid. A um, <laughs> couple of those I was like, man, I've never heard this before. And I like learning old songs. Not, uh, yeah, it's funny. You know, I'm learning an old song. I, I like that, and I appreciate the effort it takes to do that. And it's not easy to do. And some people gripe and complain when they hear something they've never heard before, but you have to have heard it once before you ever get used to it, so I appreciate that. One thing about this morning, a couple people were going out, and, and they, they, they corrected me on some uh, misrepresentations of maybe the president and the Trump and politi- political issues. I don't get into politics, and I don't keep up with politics, and the thing is, it doesn't belong in a pulpit, and maybe it was open-ended by me bringing that in this morning. So I apologize if that offended anybody, and certainly I did leave it open as a possibility. You don't need to ever hear or know what anyone thinks necessarily of a politician or a political position from this pulpit, unless it's a moral one. So if that line was crossed, and I think it was with some people, I apologize and, and keep that out of here as much as possible for a lot of reasons. If you will make your way to Exodus chapter 4, I'm getting to something really, really personal tonight in Exodus chapter 4. Not at first. At first, we're going to keep it in context. And then, because you're a Sunday night crowd, I'm going to take it out of its context and, and look at some other issues. Moses, Moses becomes a legend. He becomes a category all his own for what he does in the Old Testament. People come to refer to God's law as the law of Moses. He was one who spoke to God face to face. And when Jesus comes along, he's a prophet like Moses. Moses set the pattern, and Jesus comes along and fulfills it. And when the time for the transfiguration comes, and God wants to put two grand figures next to Jesus to magnify Jesus even higher, he uses Moses as one of them. He becomes like the epitome of righteousness and holiness and law to all the Jews. But surely by now, as we've gone through Exodus, you know it wasn't always that way. If you saw the home videos of little Moses, nothing would strike you about him as as anything all that grand. He wasn't all that impressive. By his own words in our passage tonight, he says, I'm heavy-mouthed. He was the meekest man in all the earth. Of course, he's the one who said that. That's a little bit discounting, right? He's a lowly shepherd minding his own business in the middle of absolutely nowhere, 80 years old, having done nothing really significant with his life. I wonder how many in our congregation would describe themselves that way. I just wonder how many sometimes, how many of our young people right now think, you know, I'm just ordinary. 
I'm unimpressive. I'm not an MVP. I don't have citizen of the month signs stuck in my front yard. My mama can't put valedictorian of class. My son's back to valedictorian of his class on her bumper. And you may not have an ACT over 30. You might not stand out at anything. That doesn't mean you can't become legendary in God's story. And it's despite Moses, not because of him, that he does rise to this. You look at his whole career, he wasn't all that impressive in himself. You do a 60-minute study of him or a 2020 special, tentative, meek, mild, and you would scratch your head and go, why does he end up being so venerated? We know the answer to this because of his excuses. Number one, who am I? Number two, who are you, God? Number three, people won't believe me. And number four, I don't have the abilities necessary. Those skills you need for the task you're calling me to are not in my skill set. And he says to God, I've never been eloquent. Not even before when I was Pharaoh's son was I eloquent. And not now that the only thing I have to talk about all day or talk to all day is a bunch of sheep roaming in the wilderness. It doesn't allow for a lot of conversation skills to be developed. He somehow thinks that eloquence is required for the job. You can see why, right? I mean, God says to him, first of all, I want you to go to my people and talk them into supporting you. And then I want you to go to Pharaoh, the, the, the top dog in the world. And I want you to tell him and convince him to let my people go. And Moses is going, that's going to require some kind of eloquence that I ain't got. You can understand that, right? Moses says, I am heavy of mouth. Your version may say, slow of speech and tongue. I have no idea what this means. And Hebrews, apparently the Hebrews knew what this meant, but we don't. The Septuagint makes it sound like he's a stutterer. Have you ever met a stutterer? These people are very self-conscious of the fact that they're wanting to get something out, but they can't. And here comes Moses before Pharaoh and says, It's really not very impressive. Maybe it's not that. Maybe some argue it's a lisp. He talks a little funny, like a tongue stuck out. And he comes before Pharaoh. Is Pharaoh going to take him seriously? They won't let my people go. Pharaoh's going to laugh at him. Maybe it's because he has not been in his native tongue and spoken a conversation in the language he grew up in in over 40 years. If you go to another country, learn that language, and speak it exclusively for the next 40 years, what will happen to your native language? You're going to lose it. It's going to break down. And now God wants you to go back and use that language eloquently and effectively to speak to your own people. And you don't have the words. You don't have the vocabulary anymore. You don't have a sentence structure, and you're very self-conscious of that. Or maybe it's something else entirely. I don't know what this is, and nobody, everybody makes speculations about it. Maybe he's just not good at conversation. Diplomacy. If you look in chapter 6, verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am, I am of uncircumcised lips. What in the world does that mean? gets worse. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. I think I've got a screen on this. Is that right? 
This is what Paul, the, 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 the people that Paul is writing to in Corinth say about Paul. They look at him and they say, you know what? His letters are really weighty and strong. He has a strong penmanship, but when he becomes present, his speech is of no account at all. Paul was not a great public speaker. And his enemies, or the people who didn't really go for him, kind of find him unimpressive. Oh, you're tough in print. But when you're in person, you're not that impressive. So this is not all that unusual for God's people. Logically, Moses has a really good argument. And God's going to address it very seriously because God knows this is a legitimate obstacle in Moses' way for this call from God. He doesn't reprimand him. He doesn't minimize him. He doesn't say your faith is no good. God does see this as a valid argument. And there is, isn't there, there is a certain amount of eloquence and entertainment that you want from a sermon or a speaker. The reason you usually prefer one over another is because one of them knows how to argue a little better, present it a little better, or in a more effective way. It's one thing to get up and speak the truth. It's another thing to get up and speak the truth effectively. And Moses feels very conscious that he has very little oratorical skill. And if he's stuttering, or if he has a lisp, is it any wonder why? So God's going to give him a reply. We're back in Exodus chapter 4, beginning verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past when I was in Egypt, or since you've spoken to your servant, I'm slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who made your mouth? God has given a very good reply to every objection and excuse presented so far. Who am I? Don't worry, it's about me, I'm going with you. Who are you? Well, I'm going to tell you who I am and I'm going to tell you revelation. They're not going to listen to me, I'm going to empower you with the ability to do signs. Every time there's an objection, God meets it with something that he empowers Moses with to overcome the objection. God never calls without equipping Never. And so God says to him, Do you not think I'm capable of guiding your mouth to say what I needed to say? God's going to do some ventriloquism and he's using Moses as the speaker. The one overwhelming truth of this should overcome all self-consciousness and timidity. I agree with Moses. He's not a great option. On paper, he looks terrible. And you're thinking, God, he has a bad history. He's been out of commission for a long time. But yet, every objection you give gets overridden by this one thing. God wants him. If God calls, God equips. Is that still true? This is the reason why I can guarantee every one of you, you have a gift you must, should, ought to use for and with this congregation. Now, a lot of you are sitting around, I don't know what it is, or you're too timid, I don't want to use it. I don't care what excuse you give. What I know is God has given every one of us at least one of these. If Scripture is true in anything, it says everyone has at least one of these. And if you're not using it for the glory of God with this congregation to do the mission of this congregation, you are not fulfilling your obligation to the body. Is that true? Am I overstating this a little? I'm not. And we have the same excuse as most. Well, I just, oh, I just, I just, I don't have the ability. God says, oh, yes, you do. 
I gave it to you. No, I don't. Look at my word. Three different passages I tell you at length, chapter length, about the gift I've given you. You calling me a liar? Go ahead and answer that one. If God calls, he equips. That's true for Moses, and that's true of you. We're told that every body part of the body has a function that needs to be fulfilled for the body to be fully healthy. If Valley View is going to be as healthy as it can be and fulfilling the mission God's assigned us, each part must do its work. And so God says, who gave you your mouth anyway? And then God goes on to say, I'm going to give you, I'm going to speak through you and I'm going to give you the words. And that's a little weird, right? Moses never did say, I have a word problem. He says, I have a mouth problem. But maybe that's what he meant. Maybe he meant, I don't think on my feet very well. How many of you, when you're in a conversation with somebody, three days later you think, what a great reply. I wish I'd have thought about that then. Anybody done that before? I wish I'd come up with that instantly, but I, it took me three days to come up with it. And I think that's what Moses, maybe part of his problem is, I just don't think on my feet. I, I don't have a, a fast thought to my, my mouth, right? And God says, I tell you what, I'll give you the script. I will spontaneously tell you what to say, and I will be present with you, and I will guide your mouth. Open up and let me do this, he says. When God gives insurance like this, you should walk out in front of a billion people and do whatever he asks you. But as Jerry Seinfeld says, people are, there's more people afraid of public speaking than there are people afraid of death. And he says that means that at a funeral, at a funeral, there's more people who'd rather be in the casket than given the eulogy. It's true. People are terrified of this, and that's what he's asking. Here's another thought. I'm giving you some great truths here. Moses has a great reason, okay? But here's the thing. Reasons become mere excuses when you lack faith. Reasons are like moments where you decide, am I going to believe God or not? At some point in time, all the stuff we talk about in Bible class about God empowering us and God being present with us and God loving us and asking us to be as ambassador, some of that sometime has to matter. Sometime we have to believe it enough to march out there and act on it. And if we believe it, if we believe it, these moments in our lives where weaknesses crop up, we, we're so timid and we're so shy because, well, I don't have this. But you know this is a moment where God calls you to, to say something, to speak something. This is a moment where either reason of my weakness meets faith and I do it anyway, or reason lacks faith and becomes a mere excuse. Because weaknesses and disabilities are irrelevant when God calls a person. Here's what every preacher knows. There's a promise in Isaiah that goes like this. God's word never goes forth and comes back void. It always accomplishes that for which he intended it. You think that's true? You better. It's written in there. I don't know why I keep asking if you believe that's true. I don't care whether you do or not. It's what it says. 
And that means that even the least eloquent person, when he speaks the words God wants him to speak, it never comes back without accomplishing what it's designed for. What a promise. And so, success then doesn't depend on our competence. It depends on God's omnipotence. And whether you trust that or not, will be told not in what you say to an answer or a verse, it's in what you do when you feel that sense of incompetence in you. Don't refuse to do something he asks because of who you are, except because of who God is. That's the whole thing. Now, the rest of this passage is troublesome to me. And I'm not sure I can answer all this stuff. And In fact, you're probably not even asking I could observe the Passover and nobody will think anything of it. But it's very troublesome and I think you need to grapple with it. I've come to believe as Jonathan and I talk about everything he does, he's in the book of John right now, and I'm convinced John is looking at Exodus a lot because John comes along and he uses the I am stuff a lot. John has seven I am's, probably several more than that, I am's of Jesus. That sounds like Exodus. And then he uses the sign language of Exodus. So the signs God uses to convince people that he is behind and he's returning. He's behind all this stuff Moses is doing. He's returning to his people. John picks up that sign language and talks about seven signs that prove Jesus is the Christ. But in this particular scene, I'm taken back to John chapter 9, verse 2. Do you remember this? There's a blind man. And the disciples walk along and they see a blind man. It's kind of like they, they pick him up and they look at him in all corners and they put him in a lab and they say, Jesus, tell us, whose sin is responsible for his blindness? His own or his parents? Whose fault is it that he's blind? What an interesting way to treat a blind person. But you know, it is an important discussion to have. Now, if you're ever at a football game or a basketball game and you have some really bad refs and you want to sound like holy when you object, yell out, John 9-2! You get it? Is it his fault or his parents' fault that he was born blind? The ref, you get this? Okay. If you're at CRA, that's the sanctimonious way to do it, really. But here you are, and you see this man, you decide this question, okay? Is it, is, whose fault is it? And here's how Jesus responds. It's not that this man sinned or his parents. The answer is none of the above. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. You think that's true all the time in every case? You think it's true that when a person is born blind... It's a work of God so that the work of God might be displayed through the weakness and handicap they have. Hold that for a minute and go back to Exodus chapter 4. And this is troublesome. Who made, God, who made man's mouth? Who made him mute? Who made him deaf? Who made him seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Did God make blind people blind? Does that bother anybody? Make you unable to speak. Make you unable to hear. And here's a child born, and no fault of anybody's, it's just, but God's. It's God's fault. 
Is it not I, the Lord, has done this? Does that not trouble your soul? What about Down syndrome? What about autism? Is that God's fault too? Don't take God off the hook too easily. Because he takes responsibility in this verse. It is I, the Lord. And that really, really, really frustrates me to think about that. At least when I could take him off the hook and not really know the answer to this, I could kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. When he comes out and takes responsibility himself, it's a little hard for Christians to let him off the hook. Now, is this true all the time, or is this true just in what he's talking to Moses? It makes it sound like a permanent principle in this passage, at least for those who are born this way. Sounds like God inserts certain disabilities in certain people and certain weaknesses in others. God intentionally would have a person not be able to see. Withholds the ability to hear from the womb. And I want to shout unfair, and I want to say, God, that is so totally cruel. This doesn't match the kind of God thing that I would expect you to do. And if you look at John, and his answer in John chapter 9, Jesus, if you think he's making a universal statement, then he's doing this. God assigns, allows or assigns, certain weaknesses to provide for the chance for God to be glorified through those weaknesses. There's something God is receiving in this particular circumstance through this person. God is most honored when when people with weaknesses utilize them or overcome them and serve God in great ways. What's true of Moses is true of all of us. There's no higher glory or honor than to be a human being who, through our lives, weaknesses and strengths and all, brings glory uh, to God. And God provides all sorts of opportunities for us to do this. This sounds universal. Look at Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. It's a thorn in the flesh. It sounds not like a temptation. It sounds like a physical ailment to me. Maybe not, but it sounds like it. Thorn in the flesh. I plead with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I could do so many greater things for you if you would take this out, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient. I'll give you power to endure this. My power is made more perfect in your weakness. I am demonstrated better with you being weak than you being strong. God wants to use people with weaknesses and disabilities to make the world marvel at him, at their faith and how they handle these things. So what is the attribute of yours that you are so self-conscious of? What's that trait of yours that you think somehow disqualifies me from being of great service to God? Identify it, identify it clearly because it might be the area of greatest glory uh, that God gets in your life. Don't be so quick to judge yourself. Let God be judge and let him use and let God empower and equip. You might be amazed at what he does through you despite yourself. So Stephen, when he is preaching about Moses in Acts chapter 7, listen to this line and see if it sounds anything like Moses said. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and his deeds. Is he watching the same movie we just watched? How in the world can Stephen use this in his sermon 
when Moses said just the opposite about himself. And the only answer I can come up with is that Moses was speaking from his point of view about himself, and Stephen was preaching from God's point of view of Moses. And so the question is, how do you see yourself? And then how does God see you? And then who's right? How does God see you? How do you see you? And who is right? It's the one whose perspective ends up winning. And everyone in here has a gift. It may be in the area of a weakness, but everybody in here has a gift, and God wants you to use it, and he wants to equip you in it and through it to do things for his kingdom and he wants to, you to live in such a way that while you are always self-conscious of it, the preacher looks at your life and uses you for a sermon illustration. So give me some sermon illustrations, people. Get to work and make us marvel. And let me use a sermon illustration with you. If we ever find out. God has a view of you. And I think you need to trust his view over your own. And that's the greatest challenge of faith. If there's anyone struggling tonight, anyone struggling with difficulties in your life, and you're trying to embrace faith as much as you can, but you're finding it difficult, and you need the prayers of this church, make it known as we stand and sing to encourage you.